let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Shania Kennedy, Assistant Editor of Health IT Analytics. Value-based care has become a major topic of interest in the healthcare industry as payers and providers look for ways to improve health outcomes and reduce costs, but adoption has been slow. Organizations moving to value-based care benefit from robust data analytics capabilities and support to fuel the move away from fee-for-service reimbursement, and these efforts can be bolstered further through the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Today, Dr. Mirzia Gassimi, a principal investigator at MIT's Jamil Clinic, assistant professor in the MIT Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, and head of the Healthy ML Group at MIT, is joining us to discuss the intersection of AI, bias, and value-based care. Dr. Gassimi, thank you so much for coming on to Healthcare Strategies today. Thank you so much for having me. So I just kind of want to start a bit broadly, sort of general, talking about the relationship between artificial intelligence and data analytics. So if we're defining value-based care in layman's terms as a model to reward healthcare providers and payers for the improved health of a patient, rather than the number of services rendered, how do you as an expert think that artificial intelligence and data analytics efforts can improve value-based care in general? I think right now in healthcare, we often use proxies for health that are not appropriate and can be problematic. There have been a few really good papers out recently that have discussed when you use, for example, the level of patient visit as a proxy for whether they may need a checkup in the next year, then you disadvantage minority patients who maybe have less access to care or are concerned about making a copay. And so if we're using these proxies, access to care, amount of funds that we've spent on a specific patient as a way of sort of guessing about what a patient needs and how healthy they are, we're missing a huge portion of the story. What's exciting about artificial intelligence generally, and I think machine learning specifically, is that we can use much of the data that is being recorded in many different facets of a patient's life to try to understand what factors are most important for living a healthy life ultimately. I think it's very important that we remember that some of the important factors for the comfort of our lives, for living a happy, healthy life, are things that don't often come up in a doctor's appointment. It's not a lab value. It's not a troponin level. It's not a chest x-ray. It's having a conversation with somebody and letting them know that you're feeling lonely or saying that you are struggling with anxiety or saying that you have a new difficulty with taking long walks because maybe you're feeling a little bit more chronic pain. And these things can come up in doctor appointments occasionally, but they often don't. And when they do, if it's not part of the billable services that are being rendered, they're not put down as a major part of the patient's record. And so I think the opportunity that's there is taking advantage of some of these other factors to have a more holistic picture of a patient's health. Right. And you touched on this sort of in your answer, talking about 
gathering that information and not relying so heavily on proxy data. So when we're thinking about improving patient outcomes under a model like this, obviously the type of data that's necessary to fuel a value-based care model and where that data comes from is a significant consideration for all the stakeholders involved. So what types of data and data sources should stakeholders be using to drive innovation in this area? And how can those stakeholders address potential sources of bias during data collection and standardization? Right. That's a great question. And unfortunately, my answer varies by stakeholder. (laughs) I think when we're looking at what data might be most valuable for learning, it's important to consider uh, what we might be learning. So if, for example, I am concerned about having an accurate uh, diabetic complication prediction tool, then I'm going to need to see reasonably regular appointment data, looking at a blood glucose level, looking at whether there are any ulcers forming, looking at whether a patient has been checked for retinopathy. And those are things that need to happen in a doctor's office. But you could imagine that, uh, you know, what's maybe just as meaningful as one glucose reading once a month that I do in a doctor's office is your daily blood glucose measurement that you take or a diary about the kind of food you're eating or some sort of step counting log of the kinds of activities that you've been doing. If on the other hand, we're thinking about something like onset of depression, and we'd like to build a model that can try to predict early onset of a depressive episode, you might want to have significantly more survey data, right? So you might want to know on a daily or weekly basis, maybe not at exactly the same time on different days, how are you feeling? Have you connected with someone today? What was the best and worst part of your day? These are the kinds of questions that well-trained therapists ask their patients to get to the bottom of what are the triggers? What are the sources of anxiety or feelings of sadness or other conditions that you might have? And we can gather similar data, but it has to be, I think, two things very well placed in the source of the disease or condition that we're trying to address. You know, there are some conditions that require genomic profiling. There are others that need more of this behavioral survey data. There are some that make more sense to focus on electronic healthcare records. And then also respectful of what a patient might want to consent to being done with their data. So I'm actually a huge advocate for more open data amongst researchers. And this is de-identified data, population level, which can be incredibly helpful for machine learning researchers like me to understand how conditions progress or develop over time, especially in a diverse population. However, I do think that one of the things I'm worried about is there's a trend in the community of maybe healthcare data holders de-identifying their data to a HIPAA standard and then selling it to a for-profit company for lots of money, but then not making that de-identified data available to researchers who are in the academic space. And that's problematic because of the second part of the question that you asked. How are we supposed to identify and address sources of bias? We know that there's going to be deeply seated bias in the data that we use because doctors are humans, patients are humans, and 
both of those populations, all humans have biases. And not all of those biases, if we're using that word in the sort of technical sense of having a pattern that you've noticed and you make decisions based on are bad. I know that breast cancer is more common in women. I know that there is a risk for more hypertension. If you have a history of hypertension in your family, those are maybe inductive biases, but there's also inappropriate biases against providing the best care to minorities and also minoritized populations. Uh, There's lots of really amazing literature by several people. There's the book, Invisible Women, for example, just many, many good resources pointing out that women receive significantly poorer care and minority women receive even poorer care than women in general. And women are not a minority. I would like to remind everybody, we are half of the population, if not more. And so sometimes when people tell me, well, it's difficult to correct this bias that we have in data that's coming from a social system that we're measuring, because there's so few of these data points, I definitely agree. That's a technical limitation. If you only have you know, one point, you can't draw a line. If you only have two points, then you don't know the functional family you're coming from. These are all true things. But we also have lots of data in the healthcare space that shows that there are inappropriate and troubling lack of regulation and checks on poor practice in groups that are not minorities or where maybe they are a minority, but not to the extent where we couldn't see the association if we looked. And so I think auditing the data that you are going to use to train a model is an important first step and should be done no matter what. I think you also have to go beyond that because if you know, for example, that you have a minority group in your data set and that group might be poorly represented by whatever model you train, or maybe the performance could be worse because they're a smaller proportion of the population, then you also need to make sure that, for example, the objective functions you're using to train a machine learning model are not looking just at average performance because let's assume you have two populations, men and women, and it just so happens you have very few women in your data set. And so because you have very few women, there's more variation because you haven't seen as much of the population. Well, it's going to be easier for a model to just get a few more of the women wrong than the men because it's harder to capture in general how to do well on that data because you've recorded fewer of those data points. And so if you're only recording average performance, it's not going to reflect that you are doing really poorly in one subpopulation. And so making sure that the metrics that you use in model training, the objectives that you are identifying for optimization, and then making sure that post-talk, you always audit your model. You always look at for different intersectional groups. Do I have similar performance in ways that really matter? I think those are all steps that we can take to make sure that bias that is going to be there. We know it exists. There's no help setting I can think of where There isn't a subgroup that is going to receive poorer care if we do things naively. If we can do these checks along the way, all the way through the pipeline, then I think we'll end up with solutions that perform better than the care that we have now for people. I appreciate you talking a little bit about the different types of bias and sort of differentiating between more neutral types of bias that just exist but there's also bias that harms these populations. I think 
that that's a really important aspect of this conversation that you don't always get to see or hear about. So I appreciate that you bring that up, especially because it sort of leads me into the next thing I wanted to get your perspective on, which is more to do with the analytics, because obviously we've touched on data collection and handling, but that's followed by analytics. And that's sort of where AI or an ML model can come into play. Many providers and payers aren't necessarily creating their own models from scratch. So in your opinion, how can they sort of ensure that the model that they're choosing isn't biased in some way? There are a few options for model auditing. Right now, there aren't many good options that are readily available in a way that is easily used by auditors, you know, potential auditors of a model. And there are different conditions under which you might audit a model. So for example, if you have access to both the model and the data that was used to train and evaluate it, it's reasonably simple to go through some of these steps in the pipeline and look at the data, make sure that all the subgroups that you imagine could have some sort of gap or that you've looked through the literature and there's a documented set of cases in which subgroups are disadvantaged, there are gaps. But that's, I would say, a very rare setting where somebody hands you a trained model and all the data around it. More often than not, we're just given pre-trained models. And I think my concern with that setting is that there are a few ways to think about how you can do the audit. You can say in my own data, and this actually happened, there's a great health affairs article by the folks at UCSF where they looked at the no-show predictions for one of the EHR AI modules that was available. And they found that it was uh, disproportionately predicting no-shows for minority patients which again, given you know, socio-technical issues with the healthcare system, makes sense. If you are unable to take time off from a job, you are more likely to no-show. And in our society, minority patients are much more likely to have jobs that have less flexibility. And so you can try to look within your own data once the model is running on it to see if there are associations that are worrying. But that's you know sort of a spot check of a sort. And so I think there are a couple of groups right now that are working on ways to understand when a a model is trained and you give me this, you know, sort of trained representation. And a good way of thinking about this is you give me a bunch of data and those data are just points. And when you train a model, you're basically learning a ball, you know, if it's in three dimensions And you're learning some mapping between every single point that you might ever see and where it should hit on that ball. But if, for example, you learned the ball, you know, how to move from one corner of it to another corner along the surface, if you only really learned that very well for light faces or male patients or dogs of a specific breed, depending on the classification task we're talking about, but you never really learned it well for others that might be using this at deployment time, then there should be a way of looking at the topology of that ball, right? Looking at how information tends to get sorted into different parts of the space and saying, hey, this representation, this thing you trained, I know you won't let me see the data, 
but the way it's looking kind of misshapen on this side and squashed on this side a little bit, I don't think this is going to work for female patients or African-American patients or the intersection female African-American patients. And so my group is working on technical methods to audit models that have already been trained when we don't have access to their data. And there are a couple of other groups that are looking at this as well. But right now in the regulatory space, you know, when you want your model to be approved by the FDA, you're sort of reporting the performance to them. You're giving them the model and you're saying, when we ran this model on this data, we got this performance. It's not like the FDA has this special secret held out data set of test points that it can use against these models and say, hey, but you failed our check. It's a lot like what happens with pharmaceutical companies where we sort of inspect what they've done and we say, yeah, we, we think you did the right thing here. And if these results are real, then this is actually a great product. But in this setting, you know, you don't have to run a clinical trial and recruit tens of thousands or more patients to test a drug on, it would be very valuable, I think, if we had frameworks where there was an automated way of evaluating models after they were trained, even if a company says, hey, I can't give you access to the data that I use to train this. So I hear a lot from researchers, pretty much what you're telling me here. Um, there's this need for you know auditing. There's this need to you know, make sure that these models are being evaluated properly. And I've, I've heard researchers say time and again, you know, even a robust algorithm can be improved over time through auditing and through looking at model fairness. So how can payers and providers, you know, once they have these analytics platforms, how do they audit them to improve their model fairness? And what are some of the trade-offs that can come along with that? That's a really hard question. It's a tough space right now, I think. There are many efforts right now that I'm aware of actually within the Jamil Clinic community looking at good ways of ensuring that a deployed model is actually robust. And this is really important, actually, because if you want machine learning models to actually help everybody, you need to have sustainable technology, right? And so this means that we need things that are going to work well in many different settings and can actually be deployed and then audited by people on the spot. So I think there are two things that we should keep in mind um, for payers, providers, and users. The first is that machine learning models, you know, AI generally, these are just tools and you don't need to understand them deeply in order to occasionally be skeptical of them. And so I would bet that uh, not every uh, clinician or clinical staff member actually knows exactly how the blood gases are derived from a vial of blood or exactly how the MRI machine processes the resonance imaging or how a digital scale works even. Many of the treatments we use, we don't really understand exactly the biological or biochemical mechanisms that are working for specific parts of a human's response, like lithium or Tylenol. It's a strange thing to say, but I think we as end users need to understand that like all tools, machine learning will occasionally be wrong. 
Um, and we will not really probably understand it perfectly in the same way that we don't understand many of our tools or treatments, but it can be very useful. I do really like the way that a lot of the medical imaging technology is licensed and sold. So, you know, when you buy an MRI machine, it's expensive, but all that money is not going just to the device. It comes with a yearly service contract. They come into your hospital and they check to make sure that the machine is well calibrated, that it's performing well, that it's actually going to give you the images that you need, that it's in spec, essentially. I think as we consider machine learning models being deployed in clinical settings and being used, those models need to come with those kinds of service contracts, those kinds of guarantees that a real person who has expertise in this technology is going to come into your setting and make sure that this service, this tool, this technology is working well for you for the patients you have, for the data you have, for the kinds of processes that your infrastructure supports. And if not, we will need to tweak that because otherwise we're going to be left with these sort of piecemeal solutions that maybe at one time for one set of data might have worked well, but just don't scale to the kinds of settings that health really needs to excel in. And these tools, you know, you mentioned that they're tools. But you also point out that, yes, real people like need to be involved in the making sure that they're fair, that they're not perpetuating these biases. So to sort of wrap things up here, I wanted to ask you a little bit about health equity, because in this season of healthcare strategies, we're looking to see how each of these topics goes back to advancing health equity. So in your view, how can using AI as a tool in a value-based care model affect health equity? I think that using machine learning tools can advance health equity because humans don't always recognize the ways in which they are biased, right? And there's been a lot of really good social science and psychological research on this demonstrating that we're not fully aware of our biases and we're also not fully aware of the way that our environment might prompt us to make one decision versus the other in ways we're not really aware of and therefore able to address. But if we could just tell people in a way that makes them think, it doesn't short circuit their thinking, that maybe they're treating this patient in a way that is not appropriate, that they should consider uh, different treatments or different ways of talking to a patient or different prescriptions, then I think we can potentially improve the care that's delivered. All I hear in the sort of social parts of my collaboration calls with my uh, clinical colleagues is how burnt out they are. And this is before the pandemic, but now really true during and after the pandemic. The load that they are bearing is truly incredible. And so, you know, they feel like they're in a position where they want to care for their patients with the English language meaning of the word care. They want to have some sort of stake in the outcome of their patient and feel like they want them to succeed. They want to have that kind of association, but they're overloaded and overwhelmed with all of this information and all of these different tasks that they have to do and all this documentation and risk scores and prescribing. 
And so if we as technologists, as a machine learning for health community who collaborate really closely with those colleagues of ours, can give them tools that they can use to help improve the care they're delivering. Because, you know, we use shortcuts when we're tired. A lot of the research that I've read in emergency decision-making suggests that people perform really well when they are well-rested, they're given a lot of information, they have, you know, access to, but then when you vary their environment in ways that make them uncomfortable or stress them, you know, or even just change the, what they're used to, you see variant behavior. And I think in a healthcare setting, that's really, really difficult. And then there's also just bad days. People make mistakes, humans make mistakes. And so if we can have systems that have been intelligently trained not to naively replicate the things that we've seen clinical systems do, but to recommend improved care, what we'd actually like to do, then I think that is the best of both worlds. I agree. And I think our listeners will really identify with that. Um, Many of them are clinicians themselves. And I hear all the time about how burnout is severely affecting them and impacting their care. And so highlighting the humanity of not only the patients, but also everyone else along the care continuum involved in this process, it's really good to see that. And it's really good to highlight that AI can assist in that realm rather than replace So that's all we have for today on Healthcare Strategies. I want to give a big thank you again to Dr. Gassini for chatting with us. Thank you so much for having me. Feel free to reach out to me over on Health IT Analytics at skennedy at intelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts on this topic or share any healthcare-related stories you'd like us to consider for coverage. That's S-K-E-N-N-E-D-Y at intelligentmedia.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please let us know by following Healthcare Strategies on your favorite podcast platform and leaving a review. This has been an Intelligent Healthcare Media production. 